As we continue to make our way through Luke's gospel, hearing his words to Theophilus in verse 4 of chapter 1, I have written these things so that you might have certainty. And so this season throughout Luke's gospel, we are trying to remind ourselves of the certainty we have about the gospel of Christ's coming and what his coming has brought for us. And so this morning we're going to be continuing to pick up where Brother Todd left off last week in Luke chapter 1. Um, we'll be focusing in verses 46 to 56, um, <clears throat> wrestling with this idea of worshiping alongside of Mary, of magnifying the Lord with me this Christmas. This morning as you turn there, I think it's maybe something to consider of two objects that you're probably familiar with that serve to magnify. One is a microscope and the other is a telescope. Now consider the difference, though. A microscope takes an object that is really small and tries to magnify it and make it look bigger that we can see things. Whereas a telescope takes an object that is astronomically big, right, and tries to help us realize the bigness of that object. And so in a similar way, Mary is coming and she is looking toward the Lord. And she says in verse 46 of um, chapter 1 here, My soul magnifies the Lord. The word magnifies indicates to enlarge. Like she says, my soul is magnifying the Lord. It's the same thing that David cries out in Psalm 34, verse 3, when he says to the humble around him, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. And the question is, as you and I think about who God is and who we are called to be, we need to wrestle with, are we called to be microscopes or telescopes. When you consider the subject of which you are looking, is it one in which he is really small and you're trying to make him appear bigger to the world? Or is there one who is beyond description and imagination that you are looking at and you're trying to tell the world, look with me. This God is beyond imagination and description. Brothers and sisters, we are called to be telescopes, not microscopes. And the good news is we have a God who is is beyond, again, our imagination and and our ability to comprehend. And so we are, as Mary says, we are to be magnifying the Lord. So this morning, as we come to Luke chapter 1, specifically verses 46 to 56, I hope and pray that your soul and my soul can leave knowing that Christ's coming changes everything. Christ's coming, it transforms everything. Everything. And it gives us reason to magnify the Lord and to rejoice in our Savior. Christ's coming. It transforms everything. And it gives us reason to magnify the Lord and to rejoice in our Savior. You, you may be here and you'd say, you know what, preacher, I, man, I agree with that. Amen to that, brother. But if I was honest, my prayers are pretty dry right now. My praise feels like, man, maybe it's just like hitting the ceiling, like it's just going through the motions. I I, I believe what you're saying with my head, but man, my heart just doesn't feel it. I would maybe just say to you and to my own soul in those seasons of struggle that that's why we're doing the very thing we're doing today. We're coming to gather back around this burning bush, amen? To say, I I need a heart that needs to be rekindled. I need to remember the flame and the power and the passion of God and the good news that Christ has come to save and deliver me from my sins, to rescue me from a sinner's hell, to be with God forever in a place 
The Bible calls heaven. <clears throat> so this morning, why don't we return back to Luke's gospel that we might hear and know to magnify the Lord with one another this Christmas. And as we do that, let's come to our first truth. Magnify the Lord for what Christ's coming has done for you. Magnify the Lord for what Christ's coming has done for you. Mary, in this song of praise, this what's known as her Magnificat, right? It's the, it's the Latin word that's used there as Mary begins to praise that. And so this, she offers up this praise, and she starts out first, this is what God's done for her. This is her reason to praise God for what he has done for her. You see, the context begins in Luke chapter 1 there, 39 to 45. It's <clears throat> Mary's had the angel Gabriel visit her and tell her that she's going to conceive a child by the power of the Holy Spirit. And she hurries off and she goes to Elizabeth, who's now six months pregnant with John the Baptist. And the moment that Mary enters the threshold of Zechariah and Elizabeth's home, it says that, that Zechariah's filled the Holy or Elizabeth's filled the Holy Spirit. She begins to praise God and said, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And she says, in fact, the moment that my ears heard your coming, the child in my womb did what? Elate for joy. She says, again, blessed are you who has believed what the Lord has told you. And now we hear in response that after Elizabeth's praising of God, Mary jumps into this anthem of praise. Look at it again. Look at your word. Verse 46 and 47 of Luke 1. Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary's heart and soul longs to magnify the Lord. Notice the true source of her joy. Notice that. Her joy is in her Savior. Now, this is a reminder to us, right, that while we reject the Catholic teaching that Mary was without sin, and she was full of grace, and therefore she never sinned, and that's because Paul is clear that, guess what, all people, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And furthermore, listen, Mary herself testifies, she says that God is her Savior. Guess what, sinners, don't need a, sinners need a Savior, right? Sinless people don't need one. And so we clearly come and say, you know what, Mary is like us. Yes, she is blessed. And we're going to see in a moment as we wrestle with this blessing of what God's coming to her means. But the reminder is Mary is like us in the sense that she, too, needs a Savior. But we might ask, why is Mary magnifying the Lord? Why is she rejoicing here? Well, notice what she does, right? <clears throat> Depending on your translation, how it renders it, you're going to have two or three different fours or becauses. She just lists them out. And I want to draw your attention to the first two. Verse 48, look what it says. She magnifies the Lord and her spirit rejoices in God our Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of her, savior, of her servant. <clears throat> this likely refers to Mary's low social status. Right? We know that in Luke chapter 2, verse 24, that when she and Joseph will go to the temple to offer the sacrifices for Jesus, they will give two young pigeons or two turtle doves. It's the, the poorest of the poor. Right? Jesus isn't coming, being born into this nobility, this, this royalty of family. In fact, although Joseph has an honorable job as a carpenter, right? he's not in some royal position. And so listen, we, we look at this and Mary says, the reality is if the world was choosing where the Son of God would be born, you wouldn't pick me. You, you wouldn't come here. You don't start here. You don't start with someone like Mary. You start with the rich. You start with the nobility. You start with those that are already at the top of the food chain, not those at the bottom. 
She seems insignificant and unimportant in society. She says, listen, the Lord's just looked on my humble estate. It's just a reminder, like in God's kingdom, the judge isn't more important than the janitor. He's just not. I mean, guys, this is why 1 Corinthians 1 reminds us of our true condition. It says, guys, consider what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise or influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the lowly to change the strong. God chose the poor to shame the rich. God is displaying in his choosing of Mary the greatness of his glory that God can use and raise up his child from this lowly position, this humble estate of this servant, Mary. Further, look what he says verse, further in verse 48. For, she again, there's another reason why she's magnifying the Lord. This is what God's done for her. Listen to this. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Now, again, earlier we talked about our disagreement with the Catholic Church on Mary being sinless. But I think there's often a struggle with us as Protestants to realize Mary's true role. Right? I mean, look look what she says. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Now, consider first the reasons that Mary has not to be blessed. I mean, she could be easily overwhelmed by her situation and circumstances, couldn't she? I mean, think about the reasons why Mary has to be stressed. She's young. She's poor. She's pregnant. And Matthew records for us that she's soon to be divorced. Like stress tests that you would take, like if you factor those things in of being poor, pregnant, and headed toward divorce, those are like three of the biggest markers for like the leading causes of stress. And Mary's got them all. And yet in this moment... What we see Mary doing is not being stressed, but instead she is praising her God. And so I just had to ask myself this week, why? Or maybe better yet, how? How is she living so differently than I often do? Look what her focus is. Her eyes are not fixed on what is seen, but what is unseen, isn't it? She's Colossians 3 in it for us, guys. Fix your eyes not on the earth, but on what is above. She's fixing her eyes on her God and her Savior. And she's magnifying it. Now listen, that, that, that just, and part of it, I mean, this is, this is again, she's, she's a poor young teenage girl. We don't know if she can read. We don't know her education level. We're not really sure about it. But man, I'm telling you, this girl's been taught. Somebody poured into her on a Wednesday night. Are you with me? Somebody's teaching her Sunday school class. This girl is pouring out her praise of who her God is. What a moment. And guys, this doesn't mean that we don't pretend when we're facing real stresses this year. Some of you got some major stuff going on right now. But it is a reminder of the call to reorient our hearts and minds to what is ultimate and who is ultimate, and that is our God and our Savior. Amen? So as you consider that current situation that you or your loved one is facing, maybe it seems and feels insurmountable. It feels like too much. You've got every reason to be overwhelmed. But I think that's part of the reason why you came here today, isn't it? To remind your soul that whatever you're facing in that marriage or in those finances, or with that job situation, or with that addiction, or with that sickness, 
or whatever it is, you have come this morning to remind and say to your soul, despite what I may feel and what my circumstances may say, my God is greater. And my soul wants to magnify the Lord. I want to fix my eyes on Him, on what is seen, not what is unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but what is unseen, that's eternal. And I want to put my heart and my mind, I want my children, I want my family, I want my brothers and sisters in the church. Let us all look there to that Savior. Let our hearts and minds be fixed here. This is it. This is it. Because of that, you and I can magnify the Lord this morning for what Christ has done for you. I want to encourage you. As the psalmist says, let me tell you what he has done for my soul. Have you told someone recently? Maybe you need to remind yourself. Oh, soul, don't forget what he's done. So again, Mary magnifies the Lord for what Christ's coming, right? Has done for her. Secondly, Mary magnifies the Lord for what Christ's coming reveals about God. Verses 49 to 50 and then 54 to 55. Listen to what it says. In verse 49 to 50, they give three traits about God that, man, I'm telling you, Brother Todd, you could not have chosen a more perfect song this morning. As we were just singing, holy, holy, holy. I was like, dude, you're singing Luke 1, 49 and 50. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty. That's it. That's the very words that Mary is going to, to go from. Brother, thank you, man. It like just reoriented my heart and my mind this morning as we were singing that. As weak as my voice was, it's like, God, praise your name. <clears throat> Listen to what Mary says. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. So again, Mary points to his might, his holiness, and his mercy. Look again. She declares that he is mighty and he has done great things. Only God can place a child in the womb. But in a virgin's womb, that's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Amen, church? God can do the impossible in your situation. I don't know what it is. But there's a God who can do great things because of his might and power. Secondly, look what she says. She, again, this is why Mary's praising the Lord, why she's magnifying his name, enlarging his name. This is her telescope saying, look with me, look with me. He's bigger than you think. He's more glorious than you've ever imagined. Look with me. Secondly, she magnifies the name of the Lord, she says, and holy is his name. The word holy indicates to be set apart. It is to be sanctified. It reveals God's name, reveals his true character. This is who God's heart is. He is a God who is holy. And that's major. Why? Because if you remember back last week when Brother Todd was teach, pre preaching and teaching through Luke chapter 1, remember the Holy Spirit was going to come upon Mary and the child to be born was going to be called what? Holy. Holy. Now hold up, only God is holy. That means if this child is going to be called holy, then that must mean that this child is God. Jesus is God. God's come in the flesh. God's coming for us. Did you hear that? Did you hear that this morning? Let me stop the show for a moment. Just butt in for a second. Did you hear that Christ has come for us? This, this is the love of God, but it's also a declaration that you and I can't make it on our own. 
And the only way for you and I to make it to him is he had to come down to us and go to that old rugged cross. It's this hope of this gospel. Thirdly, Mary magnifies the Lord when she says, verse 50, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Mary, man, she has this balanced view of God. Again, I don't know who all he taught her. I don't, I don't know all of her background. But she acknowledges that God's powerful, he's holy, and yet he is merciful. I think we need to ask, where is his power, his holiness, and his mercy most fully displayed? And I think you and I would acknowledge it's at the cross. You see, at the cross, God displays his power, directing all humanity to the climactic point where he, at the hands of sinful men, will bring forth his only begotten son, stretched high and wide on that Roman cross. It's at the cross that God displays his holiness. For the question is, how shall any sinner dwell in the presence of God forever? With the one who is holy, 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 as you sang. Consider your answer to that this morning, this, this morning, that question, dear friend. But do it quickly. As I read this morning, in my, or this past week, in my reading, Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastening fast. God's holiness demands justice for every single act of treason committed against him. And he won't be dissatisfied with anything but the full vindication of his name through the displaying of his great wrath and judgment. And therefore, finally, it's at the cross that God's justice and his mercy meet. For the Son of God, who has no sin of his own, can take on the sin of all those who look to him in faith. And he can suffer the wrath and the judgment of God and take it on full and drink that cup down completely. And then extend forth to you a cup of mercy and kindness, saying, take my brother, my sister, and drink. You are forgiven totally and completely mercy and the grace of God. That's why we sing this morning with hearts that overflow, not only for the cradle of Christ, but also the cross of Christ. It's at the cross that we sing those words, alas, and did my Savior bleed? And did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? At the cross. At the cross. Where I first saw the light. And the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith, church, that I received my sight. And now I'm happy all the day. That's the song we sing, is it not? That's the Savior we celebrate this morning. You see, I think it's interesting. Know there in those words that we've been singing all these years, the burden of my heart rolled away. That's the imagery that John Bunyan gives of the Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress. I can't encourage you enough. To the teenager, to the adult here, Pick up the Pilgrim's Progress this year and read it. If you have not read it, read it. If you have read it before, reread it again. I can't urge every family here, every aunt, uncle, grandparent, mom or dad enough. Buy the book this Christmas, Little Pilgrim's Big Journey. It is a, it's just a small book based upon Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. I am telling you, it has done wonders for my own soul in the souls of my children. I can't encourage you enough. Little pilgrims, big journey. Whether you're a big pilgrim or a little pilgrim, buy it and read it. 
But in the Pilgrim's Progress, there's this man, Christian. He has this great burden on his back, and he goes up all these places. He, he can't be good enough. He can't do enough good things. He can't try enough in his own strength. Nothing he does gets this burden off his back until he comes to this hill called salvation. And that's there that I quote from Bunyan, <clears throat> reading these words. He ran thus till he came in a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross. And a little below in the bottom, a grave. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble. And so continued to do till it came to the mouth of the grave where it fell in and I saw it no more. Then was Christian glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, He hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Did you hear that? You can have rest through his sorrow. And you can have eternal life through his death. It's the hope of the gospel. But maybe you wonder, well, Blake, how in the world can I ever trust this? How can I trust that God actually desires to justify sinners and show mercy? Because that's the heart of God from the Genesis to Revelation. And guess what? Mary echoes that very thing. Look with me, you would. Verses 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Do you see the source? From the sending of Christ to help Israel and ultimately all who are the true Israel of God. Where does this help come from? What is the source of our help? Look at again, verse 54. Focus your eyes on the text. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. God's heart is one of mercy. His heart is one of grace and kindness, beloved. Mary says this is a promise that God made to Abraham and to our forefathers before us. It was never God's promise. God's agreement was never be very good and I will help you. No, the good news is despite the fact that you and I are very bad, God says I'll help you. That's the good news, the gospel. Dear believer, I wonder this morning. Do we see these three traits of our God and our blessed Savior displayed in your life by the power of the Holy Spirit? Contemplate this morning just a few questions. Would your family and others at your job say that you use power for the good of others and not your own end? Would those who know you best describe your life as one of holiness and godliness? Would they say that's a man or a woman who is constantly by the power of the Spirit looking to put to death the sinful deeds of the body? Finally, who in your life recently could testify the fact that you showed them mercy? I hope it's those closest to you. But maybe you need to contemplate a door that you've closed on a relationship. Again, this doesn't mean there's not tough love and there's not issues to our sin. I'm not, again, minimizing any of those. But I might urge you that as far as it depends upon you, Paul says, live at peace with everyone are you striving to show mercy? Mary's shown us that she magnifies the Lord for what he has done for her and for who he is. Finally, Mary brings us to our third and last truth. This call to magnify the Lord for whose Christ's coming transforms this world. Magnify the Lord for how Christ's coming transforms the world. Look at me, Wood, verse 51 and 53. She says, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. 
He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. You see, Christ's coming signifies the greatest reversal the world has ever seen. Do you hear the transformation of society? Listen, you don't see this. So you've got to see this through faith, beloved. Listen to this. Look at, look at what happens. He scatters the proud. He brings the mighty down from their thrones and the rich he sends away empty. And then the reversal comes that those who are poor and the least of these, he feeds them, feeds them. They're, they're no longer hungry. He fills them, but he also elevates them up and puts them in the positions of power and authority. Then you might rightly ask, well, when does he do this? Well, in some ways you see it in his coming, don't you? That at the birth of Christ, it's not the dignitary that are surrounded around that night. It's not those that in Jerusalem and the temple that he goes to. But in fact, it's just shepherds in the field, isn't it? You see, there's this reversal already in the coming of Christ. But we also realize, right, that you and I live still in a world where the proud, the rich, the powerful are on their thrones and seemingly running things. While the poor and those who humble themselves and follow Christ's commands seem to be actually losing. I could point you this morning to many stories, but I wanted to maybe just identify three in Luke's gospel to help you formalize this in your heart and mind of this text here of verses 51 to 53 of how it becomes into fulfillment in Christ's coming and ultimately looks forward to a greater. For example, if you turn and read and you don't have to turn there, but maybe write it down and read Luke 19. There's a rich tax collector named Zacchaeus who seems no way that God would ever accept him. But Christ goes to his house. And this man, in repentance and faith, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Salvation has come to this house, for this man, too, is a son of Abraham. And the story in the midst of that has these rich Pharisees and religious people who are scattered, while this outcast of outcast tax collector is brought in. It's a picture of what Jesus is going to bring. He's going to scatter the proud, but the humble he's going to gather in. Or I could point you to Luke chapter 8 and the ruler of the synagogue, Jairus. He comes and guess what he does? He's this, this dignitary purse, but it, person, but he comes and it says that he humbles himself. He bows himself before Jesus. He gets off what might seem his earthly throne and he bows before the king and says, I, I know that you're the true ruler of heaven and earth. My little girl's sick. Sometimes it takes the greatest heartache to humble us, doesn't it? Take that wind out of your sails. Get you on your knees and your face again. And you call out. And listen, the story, the little girl dies, but Jesus comes and he raises Jairus' daughter up. It's a picture of this man getting off the throne, right? He humbles himself. And when he humbles himself, the Lord raises him up. Or I might point you, lastly, I might be able to point you to Luke 16. Or this poor man who, who sits at the gate of this rich man and all day long he just wants to eat even the scraps that fall from his table. But the rich man gives him nothing. And Jesus says the time comes when the, the poor man dies and he's carried into Abraham's bosom, the place of God's blessing. And there he receives these good things and, and God has, has raised this poor, this poor beggar up to the highest place. And then it says time came for the rich man and he dies and... He's in hell. And it says he's in torment and he longs. The one who was filled in this life longs to have even his, his tongue, just have a dip of water. 
but he lives eternally in torment. We might ask why, because on this earth he was proud. He was on his mighty throne. He had the feel of all that he wanted. He saw no need of anything that he couldn't get himself, and so he saw no need of the Savior. He says that he's going to show the strength of his arm. Because he's going to scatter the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. And he's going to bring down the mighty from their thrones. And he's going to exalt those of humble estate. And he's going to fill the hungry with good things. But the rich he has sent away empty. You see, the story reminds us of the kingdom that Christ is bringing about is one of already and not yet. Already in the sense that Christ has come. And we see glimpses of it throughout Luke's and other gospel stories. But we realize that we also still live in a world where the rich seem to rule. And we wonder, man, when will this day come when these things will come to their fulfillment? It is not just the first coming, right? But we look forward to a second coming when Christ will come and set up his kingdom. And you and I will listen to signal to us that this world is not all there is. And that matters. Why? Because we live in a world right now. You live in a world of great suspicion. A world where you wonder what's the government doing and what are these powerful company techs doing and who's who's working together and what scheming's happening here and there you can leave cynical and your mind racing but here again we are here you are on a sunday morning in the church hearing from god's word because you realize that you desire for your souls and the souls of those around you to be transformed by the renewing of your mind through the hearing the word of god And that transformation takes place, beloved, not when we look to the world, but when we look to God and His Word. So I want to urge you this week, don't get lost reading all the articles and trying to figure out every conspiracy. Come to the rock of ages, the Word of truth that will never fail, the true light in the darkness. Bring your children around the table. Let them hear God's Word. And bring your your co-workers, kiddos, go to school. Share this Word. Our world is in chaos. There's so much doubt and fear. But there's the truth of God's Word. In short, I charge you with the words of J.C. Ryle, the 1800s pastor who said these. Who said these. I'm doing my best, beloved. It's It's going quickly. Some of you are praying. Come on, I don't know how you're praying, but you're praying. The duty of the truth. Listen to it again. This is words from 1800. Okay, hear these words, J.C. Ryle, 1800s pastor. The duty of the true Christian is clear and plain. Whatever others do, he must give all diligence to make his own calling and election sure. While others are occupied in national conflicts and political speculations, he he must steadily seek first the kingdom of God. Hear that again. While others are occupied, this is from the 1800s. While others are occupied in national conflicts, and political speculations, he must steadily seek first the kingdom of God. To the unbeliever this morning, as you contemplate Christ's coming and what that must mean, I'll leave you with another quote from J.C. Ryle this week that just stood over my heart and mind. He said, these six things are certain. Hear this, unbeliever. Life is short and uncertain. Death is sure. Judgment is inevitable. Sin is exceedingly sinful. Hell is a dreadful reality. Christ alone can save you. Would you come to him this morning? Come, crying out to the one who is holy and merciful and mighty, 
who can save you. To the church this morning, let us not forget that our time to magnify the Lord on this earth is breath is but a breath. We are flowers quickly fading. I want to urge you, church, practically this morning to share some piece of your story with others. Would you begin maybe just by writing something out? Maybe for some of you, you say, I'm not a writer. Well, get your phone out and do a voice recording. To give to this Christmas, to give to that child or grandchild, to that niece or that nephew, that cousin. And tell them why you're magnifying the Lord. Consider the ways in which you might do it. Again, this doesn't have to be all your story, but just pieces of your story. These are gifts that your children, your family, your loved ones need to hear from you. Tell them. Maybe the story of how God directed your life to become a believer. Or or share how God's mercy has impacted you to show mercy to someone else. Or possibly share a story of how God has used the church through the years to keep you from wandering and keep you on the straight and narrow for some of you kiddos, maybe it's just going back and sharing that, writing that story out and giving it to your teacher or to a friend at school. Honestly, I want to encourage you this morning before you run back out the door and on the way with your life, get your phone out, start typing it, get a piece of paper out, start writing. Get in your vehicle today before you turn on the ignition and start recording that story. I pray, guys, that this morning in just these few brief moments we've had together, That you realize that the God that we look at, listen, we don't need to be microscopes. No, beloved, His greatness and His glory is, listen, it's like it needs a telescope. It's beyond all of our understanding and comprehension, the greatness of our God. I hope and pray you've seen Him this morning, church. And if so, let's go with Mary and magnify the Lord. Let our spirit rejoice in God our Savior. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Father, that in my weakness thou art strong. Thank you, Lord, for your eternal word that you have given to us this day. Father, may you use it now to draw many unto you. Father, I pray, asking God for the unbeliever in this room. God, please. This life is short. Death is certain, hell is real, and Christ can save. Father, please draw them to you. Father, strengthen the believers in this room. I know there are many who are suffering and weak. Yes, some from physical, but many from great emotional heartache. God, be tenderly near to them. Let them know that you, mercy is more. Comfort them, Father. Draw your sheep, your children, near to the Father. I pray this, Father, in the hopes of Jesus who is coming to make His kingdom known. And the church said, Amen. Amen. By just warning, stand and sing.